I felt to somewhat systematically go through the book of 1 Peter. A little bit of context towards it. Um, 1 Peter is written by the Apostle Peter, and Peter was one of the earliest followers of Jesus, had this incredible opportunity and privilege to be an apostle in the early church. Um, and there was a portion of scripture that I touched on last week where Jesus has an exchange with Peter and there is this commission towards Peter from Jesus that if Peter loved the Lord, he would feed the people of God. Metaphorically named as sheep, just to give us a picture. Okay? Peter being a shepherd, Jesus being the great shepherd, uh, sheep being us people who are following the ways of Jesus and following God. And so there is this commission, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Three times it is called of Peter in response to Peter declaring his love for Jesus. And so it is a big thing for Peter. And so I was intrigued around that, okay, what does that look like? I didn't want to necessarily spend time in that particular verse. I wanted to look at what does it look like to feed the sheep? So Peter has this massive commissioning. Okay, how is this being outworked? We find it in the letters of 1 Peter and 2 Peter, written about 30 years after that initial exchange. And there's something in that time, okay, which we'll look at. 1 Peter, Adrian, you can bring that back up. 1 Peter 6 verse 7. In all this, you greatly rejoice. If you look at the first passages, it's speaking about the grace of God, the salvation through Christ, this incredible thing. In all of that, we rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I've taken a small liberty just to adjust that sentence so that we can see it a little bit because there is that kind of interjection in the middle talking about faith and gold. So let me just rephrase it a little bit to help us understand it. These have come, speaking of trials, so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise. Then it kind of speaks quite clearly about faith and the significance of faith. That faith is of greater worth than gold, which is a huge thing. Speaking into that time, but also speaking into our time. When we have to appreciate that the world in which we live places such emphasis on gold, quite literally, but if we draw that out a little bit, that could be anything from uh, your bank balance to your job title to your uh, achievements to everything of what might be esteemed in the eyes of society. The things that we quite often chase after, the things that we quite often make a priority in life, which kind of skews our perception of what it is and what is of worth and value. Here, Peter is imploring the people of God to appreciate that faith is of greater importance than gold. Because really, when it's all said and done, gold 
Everything of this world is going to fade. Gold being one of those uh, metals that has such strength to it, even that will perish and will fade. But faith has this eternal element to it. Faith goes on. Faith gains us access to this amazing grace of God. But it says, these have come, speaking of trials. So if we go back to that 1 Peter 6 verse 7, um, we can see that word trials. These have come so that the proven genuous of your faith, trials. If you look at the word in the Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, and, and we try to bring some understanding to that word trials, uh, there's, there's three particular words that could be used to best define what those trials are. Those three words are testing, tempting, and adversity. And if you think about testing, it's, it's more akin to an experiment. In other words, like a testing or an experiment really has a discovery element about it. I know for many parents in the room, we've just come out of a time of school exams or school testing. Ultimately, what the testing is, or what it should be, is to ascertain where a child is in their journey of education. So a testing or a trial is to help locate us. And that testing can come through situations or circumstances, those being both good and bad. When we see the word trial, we often associate like a negative connotation to it, that something bad is happening. But we have to appreciate that there can be a testing, there can be an experiment, a locating of good things. Like, how do we live when success lands in our life? What decisions are we making when we come into a place of abundance, when we come into a place of no writing, when we come into a place of, of excess? How then do we live? How then is our faith? And so trials come, experiments. Tempting, this is not a dictionary definition, it's just the way that I... I helped process it in my own mind and thinking about what that tempting could be. For me, a temptation is just an alternative, attractive thing. Really, it's, it's something that has an allure to it, an attraction to it. But there is intent in tempting. And the intent is ready to take you away from what might be the God-ordained way. It's to derail our lives towards something other than God. So trials come, tempting comes. And again, that, that often happens in, in so many different forms. Not just in bad things, but we might be tempting, which tempted, which again is, is about revealing who we are and the substance of what exists in our life. And then we have quite classically adversity. Tough times, challenges, uh, tragedies, natural disasters, just these things that come at us in life, all of these things, they have come so that the proven genuineness of our faith results in praise. So you have to ask yourself the question, like, where are you right now? 
If testing is, is about locating yourself, it's an experiment to see where you are or what's in you, like where are you? Where are you in relation to your relationship with Jesus? Where are you in your uh, relationships with others? Is there evidence of your sincerity of faith expressed in your love for others? And that love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is, is a great definition of what love is, and patience, and kindness, and not holding the sins of the past against you. And love for others, where are we? And they're just good questions to ask ourselves, and questions that I know I might be posing at you, but questions that we can ask ourselves continuously. Not in a way that is to condemn, or not in a way that is to kind of hem in, but ultimately to locate us, because if we're trying to go somewhere, we need to know where we're at to effectively get to where we want to go. So testings, trials, temptations. A trial, speaking about here in 1 Peter, typically brings with it pain. Varying degrees of suffering. If adversity is what I've seen there as a resistance to what is ideal or what is desired, largely there is pain involved. And if we kind of really simplify it down to using the comrades as an example and, and going for a run, you, you face some adversity on the road, there is some resistance to you arriving 87 kilometers down the track, and along the way, in that resistance, there is going to be some pain experience, some suffering to endure. I want to go to Romans chapter 5. And in speaking about pain and, and suffering and navigating trials, Romans chapter 5, let me begin with verse 1 because it is so encouraging. It gives so much of what we believe in a nutshell. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now we get into some challenging passages. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given us. What is your theology of pain and suffering? Theology is, is a word that is used quite often in a church faith context. All it really is, is, is quite literally it's the study of God, theology, or more, the understanding of God. So when we talk theology, all we're talking about is what is your belief system of God? What do you understand of God? But now what do we understand of God in relation to suffering? What is your theology of pain and suffering? 
And I know it's not the most pleasant kind of thing to talk about, and uh, it's not necessarily that light, but it's real, right? Now, it's real in so many aspects of life. It could be extreme pain and suffering, or it could just be your everyday gripes, aches, and pains, especially as you find yourself, like I do, into your 40s. You have those aches and pains coming a bit more regularly. Um, Our understanding of God in relation to pain and suffering, it is most definitely formed by the environments we find ourselves in. Um, According to the resource that is available to us, and also the productivity that we take in asking the right questions, will shape our view our belief system, our way of seeing the world, or the story that we even tell ourselves. For me, I think about the responsibility we have in this environment to ensure that we don't bring understanding to certain things because of uh, cultural influences, because of trends in society influences, because of uh, the times in which we live, that we would always have a framework of God's word to help shape our theology. So again, when it comes to your theology of suffering, like where are you with it? Is that something that you've even considered? Uh, have you asked yourself the questions when you're enduring pain? Like, like what's happening? Where is this coming from? What is this about? What does this even mean for my life? When it comes to that big question, where does suffering come from? We would find in theology that there are actually variances in what theologians will say. There can be arguments around it, there can be uh, discussions around where does it all come from. But then when it comes to the answer, this is interesting. I was listening to somebody who I who I respect, somebody who I feel like I've learned a lot from lately, and I know some people in the room are familiar, a guy called John Marcoma, who's based out of Portland, Oregon, in the United States. I was listening to him teach on this, to the question, where does suffering come from? He says it like this. Wherever suffering comes from, it is all agreed that it goes to good if we open it up to God. And understandably so, we often seek the where does it come from when we're enduring it. But ultimately, is that going to bring about what we hope to bring about in seeking the answer? When if we come down the track a touch, it is it is universally agreed upon from a theological perspective that wherever it comes from, it is all agreed that it goes too good if opened up to God. Yeah. If you come back to Romans chapter 5, we see this, verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character. Notice the words in that statement when it comes to sufferings. We don't glory because of suffering. So we're not 
kind of like celebrating suffering. Like, yes, how good is suffering? <laughs> We're not trying to elevate suffering to an idolatrous place. We're not trying to form a theology and understanding of God that magnifies suffering. That for some reason we would now depict our lives to be more holy if we choose to be in suffering constantly. It's to say we glory in suffering. So it's like suffering, pain, trial, challenge, adversity. We live long enough, we appreciate that it arrives in our life. I'm blaming the summer wolves for this because. Kewen has become so interested in basketball. Uh, and I know we have Americans in the room, so it's currently the NBA Finals. And it's Miami Heat playing against the Denver Nuggets. It's the best of seven games, but I was watching an interview with the Miami Heat coach after game two. And the question was coming up, coach, like, what could you put it down to as to why your team had such a great comeback in the game. And his answer was to say, this team has had character built into them through adversity. <coughs> that their season had been one of challenge, of trial, of adversity. And it was from this adversity that he would literally pinpoint the reasoning in game two they would come back to win. May we never underestimate the value of character. In a world that so often overestimates gift and talent. I'm not denying gift and talent. We all want it, we all need it, we're all better for it. But character is of so much more significance. You know, there is a trap in our society that puts before us the ambition of being recognized, of, of, of having fame or acclaim, uh, of big followings, of, of big crowds, of notoriety. The older I get, the more fearful I am of that. Because of a recognition of the need of a strong character. To navigate what life brings at you in certain situations. And so if you find yourself in adversity, in trial, in suffering, in pain, we don't glory because of it, but we glory in it, trusting that anything of suffering and pain opened to God will produce good. Now, we're going to go into a very interesting passage of scripture to end this, okay? 1 Peter 8 verse 9 says it like this. Though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The end result of your faith. In other words, the primary objective of our faith is not to accumulate, it's not to be outworked in material aspects alone. The ultimate end of our faith is the salvation of our souls. 
Now, we live in a material world. And you can finish the song if you want to. <laughs> Mark, you finished it quite quickly then, I can tell. I'm not a fan, it's good. But we live in time and space, like, like tactile stuff. So we don't deny the material. We don't deny that, that faith might bring into our lives a fruitfulness that is seen in material. You just can't deny through the Bible that people have been blessed by God through their faith. And materially so. Abraham, somebody that I'm so fascinated by, has so much to teach us in, navigated trial, adversity, good times, bad times, everything of it. But at the end of his life, we would see from a material perspective, this guy, this family was incredibly materially blessed. But that's not the end goal of faith. The end is that we would have the salvation of our souls. And and that salvation we would know is a word that encompasses so much. It means rescue. It means healing. It means wholeness. It speaks of eternity. Like salvation is incredible. And then when it speaks of souls, um, we get the word psyche, Greek. It actually isn't pronounced psyche, to my horror, when I, I looked at the actual translation of it, but we're an international church, you know, Americans, Australians, South Africans, we can just say what we want right now, it's, it's all good, psyche, we get that word psyche, what that actually means, it, it literally means breath, but it speaks more of life, life in its essence, and so when we see in the book of Genesis that God forms humanity from the dust of the earth, humanity only comes to life, not when the material exists. But when the breath exists, that soul aspect of us, salvation of our souls, speaks of the rescuing, healing, wholeness of our whole self. Emotions, mental, spiritual, body, of everything, okay? Um, There's a correlating verse to this. We go to Mark chapter 8. And I am finishing with this, I promise. Such a classic teacher, preacher thing to say. It gets you guys all excited because I'm finishing. And then I just draw it out for the next hour. Let me finish with this. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages. uh, And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Such a pivotal question. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Not too dissimilar from what people might even say today. You don't even necessarily follow Jesus. Same question applies today, is it to them? Who do people say that Jesus is? Then the ultimate question, who do you say that I am? Same question as us. Who do you say Jesus is? Peter, we're looking at one Peter. Feed my sheep, Peter. Peter responds, you are the Messiah. Massive moment. Like if there was a spotlight, if there was fireworks, this would have been the moment for that to happen, okay? Peter, pretty sure he'd be quite pumped with himself, like, yes, how good is life? I'm being recognized, I've got the right answer, Messiah, Jesus, Revelation, I'm one of the favorites, I'm central to the plan of God, Peter, I'm the rock, you know what I mean? Like, this is it. Verse 31. Same scenario playing out. Jesus then began to teach them 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. Suffering, rejection. By the elders, by the chief priests, by the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Didn't pull any punches. Peter, <laughs> Revelation Peter, Jesus, you're the Messiah Peter, like how awesome am I Peter? Peter pulls Jesus aside. <laughs> no, then he's the Messiah. And rebukes him. <laughs> like this is Peter, you know? I read an interesting statement in my study Bible because I've never really seen this before I was looking at this. Remember, remember this, okay, before Adrian bring up this little side note. Remember this. Peter rejects Jesus at the crucifixion, is reinstated by Jesus at the resurrection, then is called, commissioned to feed the sheep. Like, like be a sheep. Feed them. Don't, don't like, just <coughs> be inspiring or don't just, you know, pat them on the back, like feed them. Like, bring some sustenance into who they are. Peter then writes a book, a letter, 30 years after, 30 years which he would have lived out so much of his faith. Not just talked about it, but lived it out. At a time where there was significant persecution of Christians, uh, horrific things happening for people of God, Peter now writing to the church in Asia Minor, not just one specific church, but like that church, this is kind of now again Peter in letter format feeding the sheep. And the objective of the book or the letter is to stand firm in your faith in the midst of trial. Peter, in this situation, rebukes Jesus. Why did he rebuke Jesus? Well, up until this point, and this is the comment that I saw in my study Bible, suffering and rejection had no place in Peter's conception of the Messiah. Up until that point. All Peter saw or knew of or believed in or had a worldview of the Messiah was one of triumph and victory and freedom and kingship. Now all of those things are true, but not in the way that Peter believed them to be true. Because something happens in a different way to what we thought does not make it not a God way. Because Jesus then turns to Peter and rebukes him in like probably the most harshest way, like get behind me, Satan. You know what I mean? Like that's it. Right? <laughs> you know? So anyway. But he makes this comment. And Adrian, I've got that passage there. If you go back to Mark 8, uh, towards the towards the end, Jesus says to Peter, You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely concerns of humans. Which is interesting, right? Like, even when we start to talk about suffering and pain and adversity and trial and, and what it is that we might even be enduring right now, it's understandable to go straight to, like, the human concern aspect of it. 
Because in a human way, this isn't awesome for me. I'm not enjoying this. This isn't cool. There's no good happening here. Or why is this uncomfortable? Why is this pain? And I don't understand it. The rebuke that comes back to Peter is, is your thinking is, is at a human level. Human concern. But there is a concern that is high. It's the God concern. It's the God way. It's the, it's the, his ways are higher. His ways are greater. Often, perhaps beyond what our understanding might see right now. But we go back to in suffering and glory because it produces. And we might not know where it comes from or have certainty around where it comes from. But what we can agree in and have hope in is that all things open to God. There is good to come. Not according to our understanding, but according to His. And His ways are high. Can I pray for us? Pray with you. Father, I just want to ask of you, as, as we're touching on something which, when it's all said and done, might be quite triggering for many of us in the room, a topic that is not comfortable, quite literally speaking, of pain and suffering. Lord, we just ask that what has been spoken this morning doesn't end here, but that we would go away from here and continue to seek you in this in this topic of pain, suffering, trial, challenge, temptation, adversity. And we pray by you, Holy Spirit, that you would be the one that brings comfort, but also brings greater understanding. Not necessarily understanding to the source, but understanding to what your intent might be. The hope that we have in Jesus. That you are able. That you are good. That your ways are high. We pray, Lord God, that we would come to develop character, substance, death. That we can withstand, stand firm in our faith. But continue to go beyond that and live in what is also the victory and the triumph and the liberty and the freedom and the wholeness that comes. The salvation of our souls. Lord, bless your people. May your hand be upon us to go into this week, to continue to grow in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.